Have you ever wondered if China had an inventor like Da Vinci? Or why exactly Hadrian built his wall in Britain? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I'm joined with my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, how are you on this very, very, very fine day? I am fabulous. As always, I'm fabulous. November is here. Where's 2020 gone, Paul? Like... Hopefully it's kind it's, of just it, flown past. <laughs> it, it not only has it flown past, but it can't get out of here fast enough. Yes, that's that's the best way to put it. But it's been a great year for us at AD History. And it's definitely get well, it's been a great year for us at AD History for two reasons. First of because it's been um sort of I guess our best year. We've had so many episodes come out this year, considering we only began in late 2019, how well it's grown. But man oh man, we could do a whole podcast just about this year. We could do a week by week analysis of 2020 at some point, Paul. Yes, yes. We would simply have to be sure to to take a, a proper account of our mental health before beginning it. I mean, goodness, <laughs> yeah. we had to live it once, but to her account it, my God. Well, this is it's definitely a year the history, uh, historians are going to be recounting, but we're going back to 121 AD to 130 AD, aren't we, Paul? That is the plan. And we do start with you, but... Before we get into that, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are and were important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it even 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So it's that time again, boys and girls. We are going back to my homeland of Britain and it's time under Roman rule. And it's been a while since we looked into Britain. I believe the last time we checked out what was going on over here was with their thinking about taking over Ireland and a lot has changed in that time not only is Britain under a new ruler the entire Roman Empire is under a new ruler that is of course being none other than Emperor Hadrian and Hadrian and Britain are synonymous with one another probably when you think of Roman rulers who had an effect on Britain Hadrian is probably the one that comes to my most minus obviously when it was initially conquered all those years ago and of course, there is one thing, one physical thing that is synonymous with Hadrian and his time in Britain. And that is, of course, his wall, known now as Hadrian's wall. But so, so there's a lot I want to talk about here. I want to talk about what was going on in Britain at the time, who Hadrian exactly was, and how his wall was constructed, why, and the importance of this wall. So first off, 
Who was Hadrian? He reigned from 117 AD to 138 AD. And he was third of what is now known as the five good emperors. I believe it was Trajan just before him. Got Hadrian now. And Rome's on a pretty high at the moment. You know, these five good emperors, history have called them. They're in full swing right now. And something that I just want to point in here from a couple episodes back. At the time, we weren't entirely sure, but now we are certain. Even though Romans themselves did not refer to these five emperors as the five good emperors, apparently that actually originated from one Niccolo Machiavelli. I want to bring that in there because that's something I've been meaning to straighten out ever since. Yes, yeah, a great fun fact. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. Yeah, and of not only is he one of the five good emperors, he is considered one of the greatest emperors of the Roman Empire. And he expanded the empire more and he headed many building projects, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Of course, uh, last time we talked about the Pantheon, which while he didn't begin the construction of the Pantheon, he helped finalize it and made it bigger than it was ever anticipated to be. He loved expanding the empire and he loved expanding buildings. And there was something else that made Hadrian rather unique uh, in a way that he wasn't like the other emperors. Most emperors stayed in Rome, or at least the Italian peninsula. I mean, when I think about uh, traveling for Roman emperors, the one that comes to mind is Nero, who was just paddling about in his villa while Rome was burning in the fire of Rome. One thing I can definitely say about Hadrian is that we talked about it before. Traveling mm. in Rome was dangerous. And the, mm. hi and the higher your value, and there's no value that's higher than a sitting and ruling emperor, that's a very tenuous business for a private citizen as much as it is for him. And it definitely shows both his interest in the provinces and uh, I, I, don't, I, I guess maybe a certain sense of personal bravery or, or utter stupidity, but he was not stupid. <laughs> so it definitely says a lot that in terms of its importance in regards to the provinces and his confidence in doing so. It's really quite incredible when you stop and realizing, hey, most of his predecessors, if they were traveling at all, were doing so with very large armies. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was incredible, uh, Hadrian's travels. And he didn't just go sort of to one or two places. He explored all of his empire. It, it was quite remarkable how much of his land he saw. Probably no other emperor saw as much as him. And like you said, Paul, it would have been a dangerous experience for anyone, let alone an emperor. Probably has quite a large target on the head simply because of who they are. And I read, you know, he, he went to Northern Africa and hunted lions. And of course, he fell in love with Greek culture, becoming known as the Greekling, as you mentioned with Ryan in your interview, in your wonderful interview with him. Thank you, thank uh, you. Yes, no, thank you to Ryan as well. Thank you to you. Yes, Sorry of course. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> Sorry I couldn't be there. And these travels weren't just for his own enjoyment. That was a big factor. It's like you said, Paul, why did he do it? And like you said, maybe, maybe stupidity or whatnot. But it was kind of done to assert his power. He wanted his subjects to know who was in charge. And we've talked about coins in the Roman Empire and their importance in the past. But to most Roman citizens, an emperor was nothing more than just a face on a coin. So actually going around and seeing that real face in the flesh would have been quite a big deal for many of these citizens. And of course, his travels extended to Britain, which was firmly a Roman province. And what was Britain like? 
at this time. Uh, because since we last looked into Roman Britain, a lot has changed. By this time in Britain, a lot of Roman building and repair has taken place. So uh, a while back, we talked about the destruction of uh, Bodicea, and that's sort of been sorted out now. Londinium has firmly stayed the capital. They never went back. I mean, the fact we have London as our capital to this day is Bodice's doing. That destruction she did in Colchester made them move to Londinium as a backup, and they stuck with that backup. And because so much building and construction was taking place, they started to educate the native Britons there more too. And on the whole, things were far less aggressive there now. Most of the time we've talked about Britain. In the past, in this podcast, we've talked about the Celts fighting back against the Romans. That has kind of simmered down. The Britons kind of accepted. These are our rulers now. And a great uh, phrase I found online was that education replaced conquest. And... That's probably the most important thing you can do. Once you conquest, educate the masses. Education is so gosh darn important. If you educate people, you can just help shape all kinds of things. And with there being less aggression now, this meant Rome finally abandoned any idea of conquesting all of the island of Great Britain. Scotland was firmly for the Scottish, for the Picts and everyone, and the Caledonians, of course. That land was left to the various Celtic tribes that lived there, and they were seen as scary barbarians and savages to the Romans. We didn't want to deal with those people. And these... Uh, Caledonian tribes, all the other tribes in modern-day Scotland, they would often venture down and raid Roman Britain. So it's safe to say Rome needed some sort of protection from these savages. But what was there to do about it? Well, enter Hadrian. Hadrian arrived in Britain as part of his travels in 122 AD, which is luckily in the time of our episode today, just in time more or less. Mm -hmm. And this and despite there was calm on the whole during this time, there were some minor revolts I read about in Britain from 118 to 122 AD, but nothing nothing that tipped the scale in any way, just some people being upline, I suppose. So by the time Hadrian arrived there, things had calmed once again. And the first thing he did was appoint a new governor of Britannia. This was Aluius Platulius Nippos. Forgive me if I said that wrong. And the two of them got to work on designing a wall to keep those scary Scottish people out. So why was the wall constructed? Well, as mentioned, Roman Britain was in peacetime. They no longer were concerned with conquest and taking over. They just wanted things to be calm. But the Celts up in Scotland were still game. They wanted a fight. They wanted a raid. They wanted to take more land. So it was very much two people, two uh, groups of people, not on the same... Uh, wavelength one wanted to conquest and fight the other just wanted to chill and to prevent this once he wanted to fight the wall was built to prevent any savages from scotland coming down and messing things up in civilized roman britain hadrian's words were to separate romans from the barbarians so even hadrian himself was, was scared of the scottish barbarians and this is just a bit of a side tangent i just really think this image has shaped the modern idea of England and Scotland. I think mean, there's still a lot of English people who think Scotland's full of scary barbarians, but it's a wonderful place, Scotland. I just found that a funny aside that even over around 2,000 years ago, there was still this idea that Scotland's full of scary barbarians. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I had a friend who was listening to that episode when 
Rome, Eyes, Ireland, when we had J.J. McCullough on. Mm. And he was mentioning he found very interesting your sights into how that manifests into the current day. It's interesting how, like, the relationship and the opinions, those sort of really base-level opinions that England have of Scotland, Scotland have of England, Wales and England, all of those ones, they really do stem back to this far back. And those, those stereotypes are rooted in thousands of years of history. That's really but fascinating the, stuff. Mm-hmm. But the wall wasn't only really there to separate Romans from the barbarians, as Hadrian put it. This wall was a haven for soldiers on guard at this border. This was, of course, a border of the Roman Empire, Rome's northernmost border. And before the wall, it wasn't a nice place. Imagine being, imagine being positioned, a humble Roman soldier, making sure the border's fine, in northern England slash southern Scotland. It's a cold damp dismal place and it still is but luckily we have modern technology to keep us warm and keep us amused up there <laughs> in roman while well, the weather might not be different roman britain would have been different in that way just imagine being a tiny little roman soldier just there and they felt lost and forgotten these soldiers they were just they felt just so isolated this far from rome it's it's as far north you could get from rome they just felt left and uncared for and Hadrian didn't want that. He wanted these soldiers to feel like valued Roman citizens. And these, this wall will give these guards somewhere inside to relax. And calling it just a wall, and it is known as Hadrian's Wall, really doesn't do it justice. We'll talk more about what the wall was actually like in its heyday in a moment. And some scholars think the wall also served as a means of restriction immigration and smuggling in and out of Roman territory. And as I mentioned, this wall served as a physical landmark of the northernmost point of Rome's empire. This conquest, it was it was kind of a gloating, I suppose. You can reach it this far. Look at this magnificent feat of our engineering at our northernmost point. That's how much we care about all of our empire, even this far, cold, snowy part of it. And it is quite an idea, Paul. Imagine coming from lovely, sunny Rome. You know, it's, it's a nice, it, mild temperatures there. And then just visiting snowy Scotland. <laughs> Ooh, it, that's that's a hard sell to say the least. When, go, going from the southern Mediterranean to the <laughs> coast of the North Sea, my goodness. Yeah. Oh. So th- these 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 soldiers base there needed something, and I just want to talk quickly about how the wall itself was built. You know, I love there's nothing I love more than some Roman construction. Only briefly, <laughs> and of course, it was constructed on the border of Roman Britain, and in modern Britain, it resides fully in Britain, and it goes roughly from Carlisle in the west to Newcastle in the east. And this is just an interesting fact: the wall has never served as a formal border between modern England and Scotland. A lot of people think it's England one side. Scotland the other and while it is pretty darn close to the formal border it it isn't actually and it never has been it served as the border of Roman Britain and that's it no more no less it has no it's had no legal ramifications as a border in the United Kingdom if that makes any sort of sense and it took at least six years to finish and it was built east to west and interestingly enough it wasn't built by people in the trade it wasn't built by traditional builders like rome didn't ship builders all the way from rome or other parts of the empire to go sort this out it was constructed by the roman soldiers stationed there yeah. and it's for it, it's interesting you know like yeah. if you're there keep yourself occupied like like i said the roman soldiers up there wanted something to keep themselves entertained building this wall probably helped and it's thought that about four million tons of stone was used 
in its construction. And like I said, what was the wall like? Well, in its heyday, it was 8 to 10 feet wide, 15 feet high, and 73 miles long. And if you look at its remains or maps of it, it literally just covers the top of England. It's really quite remarkable how long it is. And it was way more than just a wall, however. It included gates and forts spaced out every one mile. And these forts could house about 500 to 1,000 soldiers. So... Like I said, calling it just a wall really doesn't do it justice. There were like there were bases here. You know, it wasn't just a big generic wall. There was hubs, there was homes, it was a whole community. Um, the wall was bordered by mounds and ditches to make things harder for invaders. And Paul, I'm sure you can see in my notes, I've left um a diagram, the really nifty diagram I found online displaying what the wall would have looked like. It shows on the north side of the wall, there was a huge ditch that you had to go down and then go up to climb the wall. And then on the south side, the English side, there's a military road, a mound, and even a vallum just to try and keep people in and out. It really was more than just a wall. Um, and of course, my notes, hopefully should be going live to Patreon. So if you want to see these notes and my picture, feel free to donate on Patreon. Cheap plug aside. Quick, quick plug, quick plug. Quick plug aside, all these soldiers needed amusing and supplies, and that's why community sprouted across the wall. And taverns, blacksmiths, bakers, and all other kinds of merchants opened up across the wall. And this went from one of the most desolate parts of the empire to one of the most thriving places in the empire. It was really the place to be for a spell. But of course, like I said, for a spell. Because what happened with the wall in the future and it served its purpose until roughly 143 AD and it was at this year that for a future emperor Antonius Pius set up an even more northern wall to serve as the northernmost border which I should also mention that Antonius Pius is also considered one of the five good emperors yeah he must be the fourth or fifth I'm trying to think of the timelines he here. was quite sure. surprised yeah well another good emperor helping out Britain in fact and as I said he pushed the border even more north. And of course, with this more northern wall, this meant most of the soldiers and tradesmen moved to this northern wall. Some stayed at Hadrian's, however. But however, in the early uh, 160 ADs, the Antonine Wall was abandoned and Hadrian's Wall became the northern border yet again. I guess it was just too rugged and cold up that way. I don't blame them for coming back down south. That's just me being a southern old British kid. Though, yeah, well, there you are. <laughs> and the wall would have remained in use up until Rome abandoned Britain in the early 5th century. So it would have maintained for that long. And with the Romans gone in the 5th century uh, AD, uh, various tribes used this stone from the wall as building supplies, leaving it in the state it is today. And if you look at pictures of Hadrian's Wall today, it's not in the best of states, but we're happy to still have it, especially compared to the uh, Pantheon, as I mentioned, we talked about last time. It's, it, it's little more than just some uh, bricks on the floor at some points. No, because when you look at the wall, whether it be Halstead or, or at other ports further out on the countryside, mm. it's come down to a point now where it's very synonymous with a lot of walls that you'll see that farmers put up to demarcate their property in New England. It literally looks like it doesn't come up <laughs> any higher than up to the waist. So it's amazing to think how far that thing has come or rather come down in the last 2,000 years. No, you're quite right. It does look incredibly like a farmer's wall and it is little more than... Yeah, like if you look at pictures of it now, it does just look like you, you you could easily mistake it as just being a farmer's wall. It looks incredibly like a dry stone wall just put there to denote something, but no, it has deeply ancient roots. And luckily, the historians realised the importance 
of this wall and it was preserved and declared an UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1987. And of course, if you hadn't already guessed, it inspired The Wall from George R.R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire series. No kidding. Of course, no, more popularly known as Game of Thrones. I know, it's like the more you read about it, it's like, oh yeah, like this big wall used to keep savages out with like bases of it. Of course, that's the base of it. And, and of course, we mean savages from the Roman perspective. Of course, from the Roman perspective. You're not you're not really savages, Scotland. You're lovely now. They no, are, we love like, you. <laughs> really, especially we, Americans. We really love the Scots. Mm, the Scot and like uh, this is just going to be us rambling about the Scottish for a moment, but a lot of like the British identity, I think, is with Scotland. A lot of people know. I mean, a lot of people know the Scottish stereotype more than like the English stereotype. Maybe that's just something I found interesting. Scotland, we love you. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. All love to our fellows north of Hadrian's Wall. Mm, north of Hadrian's Wall, including that little bit of England as well. That's north of Hadrian's Wall, but. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yes. just that's just about everything I wanted to share about Hadrian's Wall. And of course, Hadrian himself, who's a character I'm sure we could probably look at again next episode. I'm sure he did more impressive stuff as well. But, you know, I just always have a personal fascination with seeing what my home... We always talk about how much we love our own history, Paul. And I'm oh, just yeah. constantly fascinated to just stick my head into British history and see what Britain was doing every now and then during our journey into AD history. And it's, co it's coming and coming. It's kind of sad to know that... Well, not sad, I guess. Exciting and interesting to know that... I mean, we hinted at it. Rome abandoned Britain in the 5th century. In the grand scheme, that's not that far away. I'd like to see Britain rise and fall. I mean, some might say this is Britain's peak... In, with it being in the Roman Empire under Hadrian. Well, in, in some ways it is, because he most certainly inherits Trajan's uh, <clears throat> great conquest, especially when you start getting out and talking about the Parthians. And Hadrian's also the one that was responsible for coming to an accommodation with the Parthians, which allowed the Romans to withdraw. But the, the first part that I want to ask you about, because I'm looking at the mm. wall, and mm. I'm curious if you, if you came across this, were there was there any challenge against that wall? Because I look, there's a ditch in front of it. It's ridiculously tall. It was manned. Did any forces north of the border try to challenge it in its prime, or did it really just functionally? Well, I'm sure it would be very challenging. How successfully did it serve as a deterrent? I imagine it served pretty darn well. So I primarily looked at uh, the, the history of this wall and Roman British history of this time. And uh, definitely during these initial years of the wall being up, I didn't find any records of it being attacked by uh, Celts from Scotland. But like I said, this wall was up and served its purpose more or less until the end of Roman Britain. I'm sure at that period, some people... Some Scots were ballsy enough to have a go at uh, Hadrian's Wall. But at this initial point, no, I couldn't find anything particularly mentioning uh, uh, Celts trying to get at it. And I don't blame them. I think, imagine if you were just like a wee little Scottish Celt who liked to nip down to Britain every now and then and raid and pillage. You do it one day, and there's this, well, not one day, it took six years to construct. Yeah, but, ha, huh, this big wall's in my way now. And it really did go from coast to coast. I guess that's one of the most important things about uh, Britain. We all, something I think I've said in the past is history is shaped by geography. 
and obviously Britain's geography is that it goes north to south, more or less. You know, it's funny, we actually, I think it was a day or two ago, I just noticed it today, one of our perennial followers and uh, participants on Twitter, uh, at VGC Kenny, Twitter bombed us. <laughs> I think there was easily 11 parts to it where he was talking about Britain and the influence of geographies. And VGC Kenny, if you're listening, I hope you are. We read it and it was really some fascinating stuff. So thank you for sending that over to us. And not to yes. plug yourself, but you can follow us at AD History PC on Twitter, just like at VGC Kenny. Yes, yes, you can do. Thank you so much for sharing that as well, Kenny fascinating read but yes as i was saying uh, geography does play a large role and britain is an island where you can build a wall relatively easily from coast to coast just because it is rather narrow and it's just fascinating to see that as well it's just something i found super interesting about this wall. i was just saying how i didn't want to just talk about the bloody wall i wanted to talk about what britain was doing at the time and paul i just found it so fascinating to hear uh, we've talked about this in the past about rome knowing their limit and they had given up with with Scotland and they were educating the native Britons. And I just found that so fascinating. And it looks like here that Rome and Latin was really digging its claws into Britain. This is when that started happening and that Latin influence really came into effect on this island. Now, you were talking about how Rome was becoming more educators than conquerors. Do you have more examples of that relative to Britain itself? Oh, I don't, I'm afraid. I should have looked for some more uh, examples like that. But it's just something I read about saying that they were educating more people. Perhaps maybe some of the senators, I imagine by this stage, I mean, think. let's think, when did Britain overtake? So 40 AD, around 40, it was around 40 AD, uh, Rome claimed Britain. So by now, there are definitely, you know, th th there'll be people who have lived their whole life only knowing uh, Britain under Roman rule. That's how much time has passed. I mean, if you were born just when uh, Britain had been conquered by Rome, you'd be about 80 or 90 years old by now. So uh, not that even people really lived to 80 or 90 at this time uh, time of existence. True enough. Most of the people in Britain by this stage would have been born Roman citizens and known no different. There weren't people like uh, Bodicea wanting to revolt because their land had been taken by them. This was their land. I wouldn't even be surprised if some of the officials... Uh, in Britain were born on the island by this stage, just showing how much time has passed on this island since when we first looked at it and since uh, Rome first claimed it. And I just find that absolutely fascinating. Like just this podcast is really all about the passage of time and how things slowly change over time. I just think Britain is a great micro microchasm. Is that a correct term I want to use of showing how uh, Rome, the Roman world was affecting things and how, uh, once upon a time, many episodes ago, many years ago, we were uh, talking about stories of Celts trying to fight back for their homeland uh, against the Roman invaders. And now the Romans aren't invaders there anymore. It's just their citizens. A lot of these people would have been born Romans. I just find that fascinating. And I'm curious what your insights are, because you mentioned we opened up the top here talking about how Hadrian traveled the empire so much. And I'm curious what your thoughts are in regards to why he was so interested in the provinces in a way that the vast majority of his imperial successors most certainly did not share that same priority. 
so something that makes me think is I want to sort of throw another question back to these Roman emperors. Is why didn't you travel around your empire? You had so much at your fingertips freely to explore. Why wouldn't you want to go see the rest of it? And I guess Hadrian was of a very different kind. Like we mentioned, he was one of the good emperors. I imagine if he was considered one of the five good emperors, he would have been somewhat popular with the people and maybe not as scared to travel. Maybe he didn't feel there was a target on his head because he was so beloved. Maybe he thought, I can go anywhere in my empire and everyone will love having me there. <laughs> perhaps that was one of his ideas and perhaps things had changed by this time in history. Maybe travel was somewhat more easier. I don't know. Maybe then like compared to previous years. This guy just wanted to see it all, and I don't know why exactly, but I'm happy he did because it gives us such a great look into a, a different kind of emperor. And something I want to posit insofar as Hadrian's emphasis on the provinces go, and some of this is from the interview with Ryan. Any wise emperor would do their best to make it so those subjects of the empire in the provinces don't feel as if they were mere human currency, in addition to the material resources they possess, to be spent exclusively for the interests of Rome and the Italian peninsula. It's really a hearts and minds issue. The provinces are critical to the fortunes of the empire in general, but the concept of Roman subjects buying into and feeling like they have a personal stake in the empire is very important, in addition to their having food on the table, a decent roof over their head, having something to do every day, and an ability to care for their own. Happy people, those who do not feel like they are being definitively exploited, are less likely to rise up and revolt. That's a great way of explaining it. Yeah, if you feel like a valued citizen, you're less likely to, to, to be well, not angry. not citizen yet, but, but certainly no, subject. Subject. <laughs> if you feel like a valued subject... You're not going to be angry. Like we said, he's a good emperor. I'm sure people are happy to see him. He kept people happy. And happy people don't revolt on the whole normally. No, no. That 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 really is a very good way of avoiding it. So long as bellies are full, people have decent roofs over their head, they have something to do every day, and they're able to look after their own. It really goes a long way. In terms of the wall that we have talked so much about, have you personally made a trip to said wall? I haven't, unfortunately, because, um, but I really loved it. It passes near Newcastle. Um, and a couple of years back, I did take a visit to Newcastle. I spent a week there. Um, I didn't get out to see the wall, which is really annoying, but it's definitely on my bucket list for sure. There's whole, like, I don't know if guided is the word, but you can do, like, entire walks of the wall. Like English Heritage, which is a company here, will, like, preserve a lot of these historic sites. English Heritage, who uh, preserve a lot of these sites, uh, sort of maintain them all and whatnot. And there's like official walks, there's a pathway next to the wall, and you can walk from east to west, from west to east through the entire thing. In a few days, they recommend here you can stop here for uh, for a drink, stop here for some lunch, stop here to rest for the evening. It you can make a whole like vacation or holiday or travels out of just walking this wall and seeing what it entails it's definitely it's it's a popular tourist attraction that's for sure for people from all across the world to come visit not just not just other english people or other scottish people to go look at that's for sure something i'm curious about though is undoubtedly you've known people that have seen the wall have they reflected upon it to you at all uh my parents have gone to see the wall funnily enough and they were i think they have got if dad's listened to this he's gonna message me say no patrick i haven't seen the wall but, um, <laughs> Uh, of mum listened to this um they saw it i think they were very impressed by it but they're you know they're big history buffs there's a reason why i'm into history so much is because of them of course uh, 
And it's one of those things where to appreciate it, you have to know the history. And there's a lot of things, especially in Britain, a lot, a lot of our best landmarks are just big piles of stones. I'm looking at you, Stonehenge, which <laughs> which don't look that impressive if you just look at it. Like, like, like we were talking about, if you just look at Hadrian's Wall, it does just look like a New England stone, dry stone wall used to keep some sheep in one place. But once you understand the history and what's taking place, even just touching the wall, I believe you can touch it and you can just know who else has touched that, what history has taken place there. You can really appreciate it. And my parents were savvy enough and avid history fans enough to appreciate it for more than just being a big pile of walls, a big pile of stones in a straight line that I think a lot of other people see it as. Now, when we get back to construction here for a moment, mm. is it largely believed that the Roman legions that were stand standing there li literally built this thing by hand. That's what I read. I don't, maybe not by hand, but I um, what a lot of sources pointed to it being, yeah, it was the Roman soldiers themselves who constructed the wall. Obviously, they weren't just left to their own devices. As I mentioned, Hadrian had um, a had a say in organizing what the damn thing would look like, and the uh, uh, governor at the time also they helped sort of design this wall. But then it was the soldiers themselves who built it. At least that's what I read anyway. And um, also, I find it really fascinating, not surprising because this happens to this modern day, how there was an economic boom in the area, in areas that were in the proximity to the wall. Yeah, I love that. I love the fact that it was more than just a wall. Like, there, there were whole towns like, built around it. There were blacksmiths and taverns. You know, people would have been getting rowdy and drunk. It would have been quite a sight to behold. And I wanted to attach these to my notes, and I probably will do, but you can see artists' impressions of what the wall would have looked like at the time. It does look like a scene of Game of Thrones, to be bluntly. You know, like there's sort of these sort of taverns all about. It looks like a really fun happening place, that's for sure. Full of, you know, full of soldiers being rowdy, you know, just... Is where they needed entertaining, and you know, they had money to spend, and people would have known how to where to go to you get that money off of them. And yeah, it looks like a nice, fun part of the empire for the time. Well, that's interesting because today, even though there are definitely places where military uh, bases exist in a variety mm. of circumstances that can be much maligned, in a lot of cases, certainly here in the United States, if we were to put this in a more modern context, mm. a lot of times there is a lot of political tug of war when it comes to the bases, relocation, and alignment committee in Congress and the general program that's around that, because so many places are very keen to maintain and retain bases that are near them because of the greater economic activity that it helps generate, because you have a large amount of people that are living there, more or less full-time, a great deal of activity, and they have to live there, meaning they're spending money there. And so the fact that this is showing itself in a way in in an ancient setting, but the same general principles apply, I think is really a very fascinating connection to the present. It is. And just when you're mentioning that there, I couldn't help but think that there are still tons of towns like in the US, especially here in the uh, the UK and England. Mm. There's tons of uh, towns and cities that are built around being military bases. Portsmouth is uh, nearby to me. Oh, yeah. Based on its naval history, you know, most of the city, a lot of people who live there work work for the Navy or at least something along those sort of lines. And we've got um, got me thinking that we still, even though while uh, Hadrian's Wall 
isn't the happening place it used to be, there still are communities centered around the military in Britain and across the world. Oh, absolutely. I mean, heck, we even have American military bases in Britain. You know, you're you're roughly in kind of that Portsmouth orbit. I mm. mean, and you've probably been there more than a few times, right? Oh god, yeah. I, was, I went to uni. I went to university in Portsmouth for a very brief okay. period. So, I mean, in in your personal experience, what is the relationship like between the the city and the military installations? There, I mean, it's the HQ of the Royal Navy. That that's a big deal. But you, you were mentioning a little bit before, but I was hoping you could expound upon it some. I, I guess I wouldn't say I've been there long. You know, I've been there multiple times. I haven't really been there for long durations. I've only spent a few hours, you know, like to a day most in Portsmouth itself. Mm. But you do notice it. I believe I was there uh, for Remembrance Sunday one year, which is our uh, remembrance for the two world wars. And normally, you know, mo- most other parts of the world, it's most other parts of the country it's held with a moment of silence. And of course, Portsmouth also had a moment of silence, but it also had like the cannon fires as well from the uh, Royal Navy HQ. You could hear the cannons shooting in salutes. Um, just things like that, really. You remember, yeah, this is a military city. This is a military base or a city. And there's a good sign of it that there's actual cannons here. Actually, this is a fun fact. One time when I was just leaving university, I travelled from where I live to Portsmouth every day to go to university. Uh, I was getting the train back home and I was at the station. I saw sort of everyone going for a bit of a rush. Like everyone sort of crammed onto one uh, specific train. I was like, oh, well, it, was, it was the train I needed to get on anyway. So I got on that train because they had to stop all the trains because an unexploded World War II bomb had been found oh, in yeah, the that, sea near that's, Portsmouth. That's right. Yeah, you read about that on the continent pretty frequently lately. Yeah, yeah. They're still trudging off. Of course, Portsmouth being a port meant that a lot of bombs were targeted towards it. And that's just part of being a military city is that every now and then you might get an unexploded bomb and it's got to be dealt with. And like the city was uh, abandoned, not abandoned, you know, sort of everyone was told to stay inside. Don't come to these parts nearer where the bomb is. Just go away from here because uh, the station is near where the bomb was found. Uh, Gun Wharf, it's called. Um, I believe it was near Gun Wharf. There's some Portsmouth people listening who are getting so excited right, right now by us talking about this. No, it should be. It's interesting stuff. Cheers yeah, to Portsmouth. Local history, man. Um, and like everyone just had to skedaddle out of that part of Portsmouth. And it was just a fascinating reminder of the history there and kind of relates to what we're talking about today, I suppose. Well, it certainly does in in a more general sense. The fact mm. of the matter is there being an incredible connection between where a long-term military installation exists and the civilians that are around it and whether it be the economy and the culture the two are very interlinked and like i said well it does not always work out spectacularly i mean i'm not going to pretend that there aren't maligned examples of this sort of thing but certainly from the economic perspective in many cases not all but in many cases it, it's something that is very treasured and nobody is all that keen to relinquish for those reasons in particular Mm, couldn't have put it better myself and after we get back we will share our first patron submitted question right after a brief word from anna domini this is the ad history podcast okay now it's time for our very first patron submitted question which if you donate to patreon on at least the five dollar tier you can submit a question to us and we will randomly choose one 
each episode to answer in our middle segment. And our first question today comes from an anonymous patron who asks us, My question for you, what event in Best of BC are you most excited to cover and why? Without giving away too many spoilers. Well, Patrick, I don't think they could have asked a more advantageous question. And we thank them very much for donating to us as well as submitting what is our first question. Yes. How about you kick this kick this one off here, Patrick? So yeah, I want to say a huge thank you as well. Uh, Patreon is vital for AD history going forward. And it's just great to see people responding and resonating this way. And I guess first off, we need a little bit of context for this one. So Best of BC is our upcoming patron-exclusive episode of AD History, where we highlight some of our favourite things to happen in the BC era of time. And uh, as the anonymous uh, question asker, once to not go, go, go into many spoilers, all I will say is because we've re- it's all recorded, we just need to sort of edit this thing. It's happening. We go back, I guess, when people think BC, perhaps they think uh, maybe just sort of like the original, the start of the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic, but we go way, way back oh in this boy, thing that we, we go from the very beginning, the very beginning of BC. You know, we talk about when there weren't even humans on the planet, when there wasn't even life on the planet and that's that's an interesting art thing to ask is that even history and i've often wondered when does when does the history of planet earth start being taught in history classes and when is it taught in science classes yeah it's it's an interesting thing because at first i think we were both kind of under the understanding well first off best of bc is just to be clear on this best of bc is a patron exclusive quarterly series where Patrick and myself cover the the best and most captivating events that have occurred before the epoch of our show, best known as the last <laughs> 2,000 plus years. And indeed, we really do start from the beginning. And, you know, I have to imagine that at this point, in terms of when does history start being uh, covered, in a sense, you'd have to kind of imagine, at least in my case, it was ninth grade earth science in mm. many many ways where you start talking about geological history and the formation of life or multicellular organisms or just you know singular cellular organisms that begin to multiply and and all of those kind of wonderful things. So they, they're teaching it, but we may not have necessarily been thinking about it that way at the time. That's kind of how you and I are thinking about it, Patrick. And we even go back further than that. No, definitely, yeah. Um, we do, like I said, if, if we can give anything, we can talk about Best of BC without any spoilers, as they've specifically asked. It's just be prepared to go far back in time. Yeah, I mean, to, let me give a more general answer to really mm-hmm. answer this question. I really enjoy talking about questions that have to do with the formation of the cosmos, especially in the grand epoch that leads to our existence, to be sure, Hmm. because I find that sort of thing fascinating. Questions about the universe, you know, why are we here? Why do we, how did we get here? What happens after we're gone? Of course, that's the future. Um, (laughs) You know, the the old AJP Taylor quote, never ask historians to predict the future. We have enough trouble predicting the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Something to think about. But um, no, I, I really do love 
do love those kind of things. And another thing that I do want to get into in more detail in that series is the rise of modern hominids, to be sure, in terms of where exactly we came from and, and how we began spreading over the planet, which is really, for me at least, truly captivating stuff. Because in many ways at, at this point in time, we've, we have, we're nation states, you know, the you know, almost 200 of them now that I think are recognized on our planet. But those lines didn't mean a whole lot back then. And we all come from a common origin as far as modern Homo sapiens. And I find there to be something very gratifying in the study of that particular history, especially considering it incorporates so many different disciplines in order to do it. But to realize that even though so much has grown up between us since, the reality is, on a fundamental level, it's certainly on the biological level, and its origins were really not that different. In addition to the fact we're both sharing the same planet, we're all sharing the same planet, and in that regard, a common destiny on something that is less than a grain of sand when placed in the context of the greater cosmos, not all of which we're even able to observe. Just a thought. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself. And just the one other thing I want to say in regards to the best of BC is that if you think we have a lot to talk about with AD history, that's only 2,020 years. That's mm. nothing compared to the billions of years we have with a uh, best of BC, that's for sure. No, there's no question about it. What about you, Patrick? Is there something in particular in that series that you are so looking forward to covering? I would really like to get into, uh, it's definitely an area I don't know as much as I should know about. I guess I could say the start of civilization itself, you know, Mesopotamia, that sort of, the cradle of civilization, I believe it's known as, where civilized life really began, where farming started to happen and trading, when we stopped being hunter-gatherers and started being... Basically, the humans we are today, that's something I'm really looking forward to, to uh, looking into. Oh, yeah, that's that's really incredible stuff. That and we also get to look at various aspects of astronomy and mm. formations of stars and formations of early cultures here on Earth are are not too distant. That's cool. Yeah, are, are gen not too distant genealogical, genealogical ancestors like the Neanderthals or any various related hominids that that's some really really cool stuff to be sure that and of course i know from our first episode because we're not going to give it away we haven't even touched ancient egypt yet it's certainly not at its height and that's going to be a lot of fun i'm looking mm -hmm. forward to doing that with you that, i know you're into that kind of thing <laughs> that could be a whole series unto itself just the best of bc egypt edition so we'd like we'd like to thank our anonymous patron, and I do want to emphasize the word anonymous because I know some people do worry that when they become part of patron that patron that somehow it can affect their anonymity, and of course that does not need to be the case. You can keep your identity not being revealed, and we always respect that anonymity. So no worries there, but we definitely thank them for their kind contribution. And of course, you can be part of that group by donating to us on Patreon on the $5 level or greater, or simply just donating to us at the $3 level, where you can get episodes of AD History 48 hours before everyone else, in addition to a slew of other wonderful rewards and bonuses that come with supporting AD History. We cannot emphasize how much that support means to us, how much it helps the show, and 
what it means for AD history in general, because as far as we're concerned, we can't do this without you, and we certainly cannot do it at the level we want it, and as far as we're concerned, the level you expect it without that kind of support. So please do consider donating to AD History on Patreon, and we will be back for our second segment in a very special segment with a renaissance man of sorts from the East that in all likelihood you've never heard of and you will not want to miss it. But once again, here is Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Now, Paul, you have a fascinating story to share this time, and I'm so looking forward to hearing about the amazing Chinese inventor, Shang Hyung. So, for this segment, undoubtedly longtime listeners of AD history are well, well versed in with the fact that Patrick and myself take great interest in outstanding and multi-talented individuals, many of which that tend to escape popular historic attention. And to that end, there are few that fit that mold better than the Chinese Renaissance man, Zhang Hong. The impact his various works and innovation entail are quite literally felt to this day. And as you will soon find, the pun is fully intended. Indeed, Zhang's accomplished much in life, and we'll examine two such instances later on that are of particular significance. Though, as always, to learn more about his story and contributions, I think it is best to set the scene. In 78 AD in northern Henan province, a young Zhang Hong was born to a highly respected and notable family, who themselves were relatively light in the purse strings. This is not an uncommon story, but Hong's family came of note due to his grandfather, Zhang Kong, who was a military commander who proved pivotal in restoring the Han Dynasty, creating the Eastern Han Dynasty amidst the ashes of our old friend Wang Mong and his ill-fated Xin Dynasty. I tell you, we just can't escape this guy. But for all that it's worth, in backing the winning horse amidst a civil war, place Hung's family in the benevolent graces of the newly restored iteration of the Han Dynasty, even if not terribly wealthier, relatively speaking, for their troubles. The wealth can come in many forms, and one of them is undoubtedly opportunity. A decent amount is known about Zhang's early life, specifically the death of his father when Zhang was 10. This is, once again, a fairly common story. Yet, for all the technological contributions Zhang made to the world, early on he would actually best be known for his pen. In addition to showing a genuine talent for mathematics as well, which would serve his later life quite prominently, and productively, to be sure, but Jung first came to prominence as a tremendous 
poet in his early life before leaving his home and traveling to Luoyang and Chenang, which were the focal points of Eastern Han Dynasty power and central administration in this period. In fact, Chang'an was the ancient capital, if you will. But Zhang did not fail to garner the attention of Han officials during that time, even though he was only roughly around 20 years old. Specifically, he apparently received several offers to serve as an imperial secretary for the imperial secretat, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, but he declined. And in a way that Chinese history has a tendency to note, especially when they're looking figures at a more positive light, is they made note of his modesty in declining those offers. But basically what happened is after receiving those offers, he actually ended up going back home to his own province. But even though Zheng didn't appear to have any true political aspirations, he did eventually end up serving in roles that had definitive political implications. When he returned to his home in Henan province at roughly 23, Zhang did so as an officer of merit in Nanyang. For someone that was not apparently politically self-interested, it gave him tremendous power in that realm. As an officer of merit in the commander, he was actually responsible for making appointments to offices in the local municipality as well as providing local nominees for higher imperial offices in the Han capitals. And that's a really big deal because there are many people who have taken that role as the proverbial gatekeeper and did so purely for their own enrichment, profit, and fun. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case here. He also worked for Nanyang's governor, Bao Dei, as an officer of merit, mostly charged with drafting and certifying official documentation. Pretty straightforward stuff, but he was very literate at a time when that was something that was particularly cherished. And it was around this time of Zhang's 30th birthday that he began learning about astronomy. A fateful move, if any, as in 112 AD, he would end up being summoned by the Hong court by Emperor An himself, no less, to serve as chief astronomer within the Imperial Secretariat. Now, let's be clear about this. This is a huge deal to be tabbed by a sitting emperor himself, acting on Zhang's reputation for mathematics to make this nomination. That is a really big deal, and it's kind of hard to imagine being given such an, an honored and given such attention from these august positions, but to provide a little bit of context of the Han landscape, Zhang's role as chief astronomer fell underneath the scope of the aforementioned imperial secretariat that was composed of the three excellencies, that's what they called them, who were the sitting emperor's three chief advisors. And for Zhang, he worked a couple of rungs down from their huge level uh, to the three excellencies' immediate subordinates but still working under their general auspices. You know, this is definitely a big deal. And his role as chief astronomer wouldn't fully comport to how we envision that role today. Something we would recognize would be tasks affiliated with managing the annual, annual calendar, which ended up getting him in some trouble later on, and tracking various celestial objects like the moon, planets, the stars, the sun, important things like that. And there were other tasks that would be 
less familiar, like trying to pretend positive and negatively faded days based on those astronomical observations. So he was very much a product of his time, but no less impressive. I think it says as much about him as it does the time in which he was alive and worked. And in the first two decades serving the Hong court, he did in fact go in and out of favor, mostly having to do with objections regarding the for the proposed calendar. There were some various changes that were made to it that he was staunchly opposed to. And, and though he won out on the matter, it did create personal adversaries for him in the Hong court. And he never really allowed him to raise any higher in the ranks than being appointed chief astronomer again. And it's an unfortunate reality of life that even somebody who's operating, for all we can tell, with apolitical aspirations, that all of these things do have a political implication, especially when you have the imperial imprimatur behind it. There's just no escaping that kind of thing. But despite that, the setting definitely afforded him the opportunity, time, and resources over an extended period, of course, to conduct significant scientific innovation on a number of fronts. Innovations that, while being equivalent to a cog on a greater innovative wheel, were still really significant contributions. And in this case, the first one that we're going to look at, because this is incredible and it falls right in to the decade that we're covering, actually occurred in 125 AD. And he's credited as being the first innovator in China to create a hydraulic armillary sphere. And for those that are not familiar, an armillary sphere is a spherical-shaped mechanical device designed to track various astronomical objects and markers in the sky. If I'm correct in Zhang's adaptation, he also used it to track and record the seasons based on observing the rotation of the equator. So this, this guy was really quite bright, to be sure. And... Zhang most certainly did not invent the armillary sphere himself. Separately, it was invented in Greece by Aristosthenes in about circa 200 BC, and then later in China about 200 years prior to Zhang's work. So I don't know if there's any connection there or any potential disseminated common information based on what happened in Greece, but from all I can tell, it was similarly coincidence. They came to similar conclusions and a similar invention. Zhang made a pair of significant additions to the armillary sphere as he knew it at the time. He included a meridian and horizontal rings to its design, effectively creating what's called an equatorial armillary sphere. And we're going to put pictures of this up on the social so you can guys get a better idea of what this really looks like. Though the most notable and impressive adaptation Zhang made was creating a hydraulically powered and moderated sphere. Now, to be clear, when we say hydraulics, we're referring to a device that is powered on liquids and potentially gases as well. We want to get that out of the way. And John's adaptations were not ancient China's first major foray into hydraulics. And the concept had been deployed in numerous ways with technology long prior to Zhang's life. His design would most definitely go on to influence later iterations of the device for centuries to come. But what was particularly ingenious about Zhang's armillary sphere and where hydraulics come into play is that it was powered and regulated by both a water wheel, which essentially converts power from a constantly flowing source of water, like say a river, if you will, we've all We've all seen those at one time or another, I think, as well as a water clock, also known as the clepsydra, that measures time with the regulated flow of liquid. 
And this was pretty revolutionary stuff. He was the first one to do this. And that innovation stuck around for quite some time and was adapted for other people's purposes and built upon. But this was really the starting point for what that means. And when we're talking about 1900 years ago, having a hydraulically powered machine that is accurately mapping out and keeping track of the various celestial objects in the sky is pretty darn impressive. And it would definitely later go on to have some implications. The other thing that he was so notable for actually happened in 132 AD. He actually, this is an interesting, he created what was, at least for China, the first seismoscope. And here's a description of this process for Hung's device via David Wu of the Epic Times. Quote, Zhang's device is in the shape of a jug and made of copper. On the surface of the jug, there are eight dragons hanging upside down. There is a bronze ball in each dragon's mouth. Under each dragon, there is an open mouth frog facing up toward the dragons. The head of the eight dragons point to the directions of east, west, north, south, northeast, northwest, southeast, and southwest. When an earthquake happens in a certain area, the wave of the earthquake triggers a pendulum-like device inside the seismoscope, and the pendulum sways toward the direction where the quake wave originates. Then a lever that connects to the dragon of that direction makes the dragon's mouth open, and a bronze ball drops out. Close quote. And there's just so much to get into with this one, just based on that description alone. Foremost, if you see a recreation of Zhang's seismoscope, you cannot help but be taken by how ornate his prototype was. It was no mere utilitarian creation. It was also stunning to look at. And given that he personally revealed it to the Hong court, you might imagine its grandiose appearance would certainly help generate attention and interest in his invention. You know, that definitely helps to have a nice cover on things. Though you cannot help but also think it may well have been a product of the man creating it, beautifully fusing form and function in a manner that had apparently a unique gift for creating. Yet for all of the brownie points that the, his seismoscope earns for its appearance, it, its functionality vastly exceeds the aesthetic accomplishment. I read sources claiming that it could pick up seismic tremors from up to 300 miles away. 1900 years ago, accurately from 300 miles away. Take a moment to let that sink in for just a moment. Naturally, Zhang had many initial skeptics, all of whom were quickly and pretty sorely disabused by all means. And it was also said that its first functional demonstration, it picked up one such disturbance that no one in the Hong court ever felt themselves. Only to find several days later by messenger, a quake had occurred in the direction his seismoscope had determined. And the practical implications of the seismoscope are pretty clear in Evans when you stop and think about it. Something to point out, though, that I think is important. There's a difference between his seismoscope and what we know today as a seismograph, where in the case of the seismograph, there's a great deal more having to do with a recording time component that his prototype did not possess. So let's, let's not confuse the two. But when you consider this is happening 1900 years ago and the incredible multi-talented individuals and the implications 
that these inventions in that place at that time have towards the modern day. I think if you're listening to this show and you have been listening, you know that we take a real interest in primordial technology, things that really make a distinct contribution to the HD world. Because like I said, as we've said so many times, Patrick and myself and Anna at the beginning of every show, we're weaving an epic tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD, and this is something that would most definitely qualify. Now, I know for a fact now, Patrick, that undoubtedly you have a couple of questions for me. I can tell you're really chomping at the bit. You are right, Paul. After listening to you describe Zhang Hong and his amazing inventions, do you think it's fair to call him uh, China's Da Vinci? I mean, he's a little bit earlier than Da Vinci, that's for sure, about 1,400 years earlier, I believe, but do you think he deserves that title? Well, okay. So I can totally understand why one would be inclined to make the connection to Da Vinci, calling him China's Da Vinci. I even actually saw a couple of articles about making that same connection. And obviously we're talking about a 1,400-year difference between their lifetimes and the difference between the European Renaissance and what was happening in China now. And even calling him a Renaissance man in many ways is definitely us putting a more modern conception on who he was. But I think it's worthy enough to make that, you know, give him that term because it really illuminates the incredible array of talents that he had and incredible intelligence and and how he applied it very similar to what we'd know as a Renaissance man. So while I think it's pretty natural to want to make that comparison because it's pretty darn unavoidable, I would actually make him a little bit closer in many respects to somebody that we have covered, which of course is Huron of Alexandria and his fame, but in many ways forgotten, first steam engine, the Aeola pile. And I like doing that one is because they're closer in range and time. You know, they're working, uh, they're doing their life's work within a century of each other. And while a century is a long time, 1400 years is a heck of a lot larger. And though we lost a good deal of uh, Huron's work to the series of fires at the Library of Alexandria, as we lost a ton of other information there. And of course, when it comes to the nature of their work and where they were doing it, Heron was much more strictly academic in nature. As far as I know, he wasn't playing high politics over in Alexandria, where, of course, in the case of Zhang Hong, he most certainly had to, because in order to do this right for him, the reality of the situation very much bears out that, well, you have to make allies and political allies to some extent, even though I don't really want to fetter this discussion with that, because I think it kind of misses the point in some ways of who he was. But for all intents and purposes, yeah, I do think you can make that connection between he and Da Vinci, but I like the connection and similarity between he and Huron better, not just because of time, but because they really were creating some primordial stuff at a time where you know, if you are t going from a popular historic imagination, you're not really thinking of it. Ultimately, when I looked at Zhang Hong, I, the first person that came up to mind was Huron, and and that's really where I would draw the line. And the other question I have for you, Paul, is about his seismograph. How do you think it affected later, more advanced versions of the same general technology? And do you think his armillary impacted improved later astronomy too? Well, that's interesting. So, obviously, the hydraulic armillary sphere 
he didn't invent the armillary sphere, of course. He made some improvements on it outside of the hydraulic co uh, component. And, and of course, he wasn't the first person to successfully integrate hydraulics in machinery. But he certainly was the first person to incorporate hydraulics with the armillary sphere. And I remember I was looking into this a bit, Patrick. And the one thing that kept coming back up was one of the biggest impacts of his armillary sphere and it being hydraulically powered is that, you know, century, not, yeah, well, centuries down the line, it actually contributed a great deal to making really accurate water clocks and very much furthering that technology, which is incredibly important. You know, there's few things in human history that are a bigger accomplishment than the very precise and consistent marking of time. Now, that's not always the, the most sexy thing to think about, but it is an absolute fundamental reality. So that's most certainly where it happened. That, and you know, while we're just kind of getting into it here, when he looked up at the sky, and this is just kind of an interesting difference of how how things have changed. Obviously, part of it is improving technology and exploring space. We know a lot more now. But in terms of how he viewed the Earth, this is kind of interesting as I understand it. He thought the Earth was roughly equivalent to an egg yolk in a shell, which I thought was actually really interesting and, and how it just kind of bounces out on an axis based on where the shell is and it just kind of moves in that somewhat fluid way, even though that seems a little bit contradictory to some of his findings when he's tracking the equator with the armillary sphere. And this was not an uncommon belief at the time. As far as I know, it was an emerging theory at the time, certainly in China and where he was and whose contemporaries were. I always thought that was an interesting. I've never heard a comparison like that in terms of envisioning how the Earth sits in the cosmos relative to the sun and and just the nature of of movement and all of the various forces of the universe that make our planet what it is but yeah ultimately i think the hydraulic stuff really did contribute a great deal to later highly improved water clocks amazingly a lot of his work endured a pretty long way i mean they were still finding it centuries later even though it kind of fell out some of it was temporarily lost but you know, it pretty clearly exists to this day. And in fact, you know, whether we're talking about the armillary sphere or we're talking about his seismoscope, there have been modern scholars who have gone back and reverse engineered these designs. And there's one thing about his seismoscope that I think is really interesting to note here, because I think it says quite a lot is in within the last century a few people have tried like i said re-engineering or reverse engineering rather the seismoscope and the one thing that they have had a great deal of trouble doing believe it or not is they haven't been able to make it as accurate as jong's prototype which i find absolutely fascinating because we have modern tools modern knowledge but at the same time, we can't seem to replicate what he managed to do. But all, all that being fair, you know, 
the idea that they were able to determine up to 300 miles away that an earthquake happened, even though at this point they're not entirely sure why they happen. Earlier iterations, earlier researchers thought it had to do with imbalances of yin and yang, which speaks to the time in which they were researching and observing these things. And in the case of Zhang's time, they thought it actually had to do with air underneath the earth and displacement, things like that. The, the idea that there was tectonic plates and, and the working in the way we understand them today really wasn't at play from what I understand. But talk about an incredible invention that matches form with function. And whether we're talking about the armillary sphere and its longer term impact, or we're talking about its seismoscope and its at that time, contemporaneous impact to say nothing of how it most certainly influenced what we do today, I think makes Zhang a really singular figure that is more, is beyond worthy of this kind of recognition. And sometimes, you know, because we're coming from a Western perspective, and if you're a Western listener, this is not a fellow you're going to hear a whole lot about. But I can definitely tell you this, he has a crater named after him on the moon, he definitely has a star named after him in the sky, and yes, yes, I know anybody can do that if you're willing to pay the price, but it's significant. It's significant in a way that I think is rather self-evident. And, you know, for our purposes, weaving that epic tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD, that tapestry most certainly cannot do without Jung Hung. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and, of course, on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in history, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, Thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.